Hello, I am Pastor Richard Wesley Johnson. And I'm Dr. Corey Little-Edwards, and this is the Elusive Dream Podcast. Now, Dr. Corey, I'm not one to brag. You're not? No. <laughs> but I'm going to say this real quick. I'm okay. feeling good about this journey of doing justice. Yeah, me too. And I didn't say it was easy. No. I didn't easy. say there hadn't been any hard times. Mm -mm. But by God's grace, I'm finding joy. How about you? I am too. I am too. Amen. 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 So to quickly recap our last episode for our listeners, and this is a conversation for real, y'all. Uh, episode four focused on the voice and the value of the black church. My personal takeaway from that episode is that justice is best defined by the oppressed and not the oppressors. And historically, black Christians have suffered oppression, and yet they still rise, to quote Maya Angelou's famous poem. Come on now. Come on now. You know what? I really appreciated that episode as well, in particular hearing from Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley mm -hmm. and his voice. And I love that he brought up the importance of family and how family is so central to the black church experience. And also that's rooted in the theology of the black church. Another thing that really stands out to me is the centrality of Jesus in particular, that Jesus came as a crucified uh, savior and who rose again. Um, but that, that, that Jesus is a center of the black church theology. Yes. As Paul says that we might know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Mm -hmm. We can fellowship uh, with that suffering savior. So Dr. Corey, I was honestly a little nervous about episode four on the black church uh, because I wanted to honor my own black history, mm -hmm. the many friends I have today who are leading black churches yeah, yeah. and family members who belong to black churches as well. So prayerfully, that conversation with Reverend Dr. David Emmanuel Goatley in episode four was not only informative, but also encouraging because I know it was for me. That's right. That's right. It was. It was encouraging for me too. like I said, I'm so grateful to have heard from him and to hear um, his voice about how central the black church is and the importance of the black church for the church more broadly. So I'm going to brag a little bit more. OK, Dr. Corey, you have some incredible colleagues. <laughs> We, I mean, this podcast is spoiled for real, y'all. I'm so grateful for uh, my colleagues and friends being able to spend some time with me and talk about these issues. It's been a real blessing, and I'm wait, wait, really wait, grateful. Hold on. These are not just people you just ran into one day and had coffee with. These are folks you actually researched with, studied with, wrote with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I know them, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really glad. It, Thank y'all. Thank y'all for, for being a part. Amen. And, it, it, and but the blessing is that our listeners get to really uh, benefit from it. And that's why I'm so grateful for the time that they've spent uh, sharing their wisdom, their knowledge, uh, their heart, their stories, mm -hmm. uh, so that we can learn. So this episode, episode five, we have another guest, of a friend of yours, mm -hmm. as we talk today about truth, reconciliation, and reparations. That's right. That's right. And I remembered early on in my journey, uh, my racial journey, hearing about racial reconciliation <laughs> as mm -hmm. the buzzword. It was the word mm -hmm. to describe the beloved community. Namely, that the church should be focused on reconciling groups together. After all, it's biblical, right? It is, well, it is biblical, right? And there's nothing wrong with saying racial reconciliation, but it's really important that we're communicating 
uh, accurately what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And over time, racial reconciliation has begun to uh, change in its meaning, right? And so today, in many ways, we're going to be talking about language and the language that we use to talk about what we are addressing, right? That it's important because the words that we use matter, the words that we use create, and they impact our actions. And so we want to be careful about the language uh, because if we don't, then we can end up going in the wrong direction. And, and, and honestly, reconciliation in its origin was a powerful word. Yes, absolutely. But absolutely. it's that potency that has been lost, correct? That's right. That's right. It has <laughs> lost its power over time. In 1946, George Orwell wrote these words. But if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. Now, that's a word right there. Come on now. In short, language matters because it forms ideas. Yes. <laughs> and if we yes. want to get theological on folk Uh-oh. today, we in the to go beginning, here. God spoke oh, the word goodness. into existence. That is so true. And what's really important about that is that it's a result of words that God created. Mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, that one of the names of God is the word. Yes. Right. And so what that suggests to me, Pastor Rich, is that the word is very powerful. Amen. The language that we use is very powerful and that it creates. And as you were talking about with you were quoting George Orwell, that it creates thoughts. And then what that can do is that can lead to thoughts leading to action. Correct. And so we want to be careful about the words that we use mm-hmm. uh, to describe what we're doing, what we're thinking, and so on. Mm. I mean, when I think about what you talk about, how God spoke the world into existence, and I think about us as being made in the image of God and the power that we have with our words, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even James talks about how the word that people use can destroy people. Or it can can build build people up. up, That's right. Right. And that actually in those words also can create uh, as well. In sociology, we call this the social construction of reality. We give meaning to actions and what we see in the world with our words. Mm -hmm. Right. We give meaning to things. We give those things power. So uh, the word matters. And it was the word that created man out of the dust of the ground Uh and then god gave man humanity man and woman the power and authority to name Mm. birds of the air yes uh, fish of the sea creeping things on the ground he gave them the power and authority to use their language to name things you better preach so language is powerfully Mm. important we cannot lose how significant it is for us to use the right words and to use those words correctly. I love that you're bringing up that that was right in the beginning too, right Mm -hmm. in the garden, Mm -hmm. that we were given that power of the word. Mm -hmm. Well, introduce our listeners to our guest today. Oh, wow. I am absolutely delighted, y'all, to have Reverend Dr. Curtis Paul DeYoung with us. We're going to be hearing from him. He is the CEO of the Minnesota Council of Churches, and that has actually 27 members uh, that are denominations or communions that include historically black, mainline Protestant, Pentecostal, Greek Orthodox, 
and the Dakota Presbytery, that is a Native American tribe, that are a part of this council. He was also the executive director of the historic faith-based racial justice organization, Community Renewal Society in Chicago, and the inaugural professor of reconciliation studies at Bethel University. He has a long list Mm. of credentials, y'all. And Mm. on top of that, he's written so many books. And one that I want to highlight is Radical Reconciliation, Beyond Political Pietism and Christian Quietism. What do you think about that title, Pastor Rich? <laughs> uh, <laughs> he sound like y'all need to get with it. That's right. That's absolutely right. He get actually, off the couch. Get off the couch. Come on, y'all. We get to get beyond Christian Quietism up in here. He co-wrote, co-wrote this actually with Alan Aubrey Bosak. Alan Arby Bosek was a leading figure in the church struggle against apartheid in South Africa, and he was the extraordinary professor of public theology at the theological faculty of the University of Stellenbosch. And so both of them wrote the book Radical Reconciliation, and I highly recommend it. Uh, but what we're going to be doing right now is listening to Dr. DeYoung share his story about how he actually got into the ministry, the kind of work that he's doing uh, for the church now. Take a listen, y'all. I was raised in very white contexts. Um, grew up in a, I mean, my in the suburbs of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and my graduating class from high school was ninety nine, probably point nine percent white. Uh, it's one of those schools where you counted it foreign exchange students as a part of your diversity numbers. Uh, So uh, they went to a Christian college that was majority, very much majority white, and then moved to New York City uh, to work at a a, uh, shelter for for homeless folks in uh, Manhattan and uh, decided to visit a church of my own denomination one Sunday. I was still new to New York, didn't know my way around, and uh, got on the uh, subway and went north in Manhattan to an area uh, affectionately known as Harlem. Uh, known as Harlem, I mean, it's, it's the cultural mecca uh, for African-American people, certainly in New York City, if not the East Coast. Um, so what I did not know was I was headed to a church that was 100% African-American, church of my own denomination, and I was raised in a white church. So my vision of what and who was in this church uh, was different than what I discovered. Um, and part of the reason for going there was I was working in a very diverse context. And I thought I could, you know, get, find some comfort because I was out of my comfort zone all the time. And so I just got stretched more in my comfort zone. But I arrived that Sunday morning at the church um, and discovered later there hadn't been a white person visit that church in years, mm-hmm. not even someone from our denominational offices. So when I arrived at the front door, the usher said to me, may I help you? Which is an interesting way to be greeted when you're coming into church. Mm-hmm. And I said, it's church of God, right? And she said, yes. And I said, well, this is where I'm coming. And so she asked a few questions, found out that, you know, I'd gone to a church of God college and so then I'm warmly welcomed and escorted down to the front of the church and you know I think in my mind I kind of knew this church wouldn't be all white because it's New York City but it didn't really dawn on me until I'm sitting down on one of the front pews (laughs) escorted down front that I'm in a 100% black church and I didn't have much experience of that growing up 
So within a few minutes, uh, I'm escorted now to the pastor's office. Uh, the, uh, there was an opening worship service that had happened that was led by lay leaders called a devotional service. And then the pastor would come out later. So the pastor's still in his office and I go into his office and he wants to find out who I am. And we have a conversation. And then at some point he asked me if I'm uh, studying for, if I'm a minister. And I said, well, I've been licensed, which is the first stage in our tradition before being ordained. And then he takes his calendar out and says, can you preach for me two weeks from today? And I've been in the building all of five or seven minutes and I'm very white mm -hmm. and uh, feeling very white in this context. I said, yes, I think I'd only preached a few sermons in my life because I had been a youth pastor. Yeah. And uh, so um, he asked, I go out with him. He escorts me onto the platform. And for the rest of my year in New York, uh, I'm now sort of a volunteer part of his ministerial staff. Mm. Uh, and he, uh, what I did not know about the black church at that point, particularly in urban settings, probably true in rural settings as well, is that they have an apprentice style process because not everyone can afford to go to seminary. So mm. a part of your process is to study under a seasoned pastor. And so what he saw was a, he saw that I was white clearly, but he saw a young minister that needed to be mentored. So he took me under his wing and he didn't have any other young ministers in the church. And so he had me preach once a month on Sunday morning in his church for the year that I lived in New York and apprenticed me. And the members of the congregation taught me how to preach. That changed the entire direction of my life and my ministry. Mm -hmm. um, within a year or two, I, uh, well, I decided to go to seminary after that year, went back to where I had gone to my undergrad in Indiana. Uh, the seminary was not where I needed to be given the direction, new direction in my life. And so I had planned to go back to New York and seminary, stopped by Washington DC for a summer internship at another black church in our denomination and uh, met a woman in the congregation who's now my wife, uh, but decided there must be seminaries in Washington DC. And so I'm at an all-black church. So I am taken over to Howard University, historic black college, HBCU, as they say, to the seminary there, because that's where the pastors in the church had studied and uh, started then my degree process in a um, historically black seminary and was often the only white person in the classroom during my uh, three years of seminary at Howard. And that uh, obviously transformed even more so my journey and be added to the experiential part of being in black communities and what it taught me about race. Uh, I'm now in an academic setting where I'm having to do analysis on all of this as well. Mm. And I'm there in the mid eighties where, you know, liberation, black liberation theology and topics around the black church were of constant discussion in the uh, classroom mm. and uh, had the opportunity to be taught by some of the, you know, the, the real leaders in that work. Um, mm -hmm. And that, uh, that sort of sealed the deal that I was going to be needing to work for racial justice. And then in an exit interview with uh, one of the professors who did those kind of things for the students, 
uh, he told me, he said, now I know after three years at Howard, you probably want to work in the black community because you've become comfortable with us. And, uh, but we're sending you back to the white community because that's where racism exists. Mm. We've trained you and prepared you to go back and address the racism white community. Now you still need to stay connected to the black community because you're going to need our ability and our nurture along the way, but we need you out there. And as I look back across my life, God has placed me in settings like the Minnesota Council of Churches that required the kind of race analysis that I learned at Howard and the need to address racism in white communities. Oh, Pastor Rudge, I, that story of Reverend Dr. DeYoung and how he got into ministry is so inspiring and encouraging. Mm-hmm. And it also makes me think about how God works in our lives in ways that we can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. Here he is thinking he's going to go to an all-white church to get some comfort <laughs> from the diverse space that he was in. And he ends up in an all-black church, a space that he had never been in before. And not only that, you know, when I think about how he was included so quickly, yeah, it reminds usher, it. Yeah, it, it, go ahead. Well, the usher took him right up to the front. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he took him right up to the front after they checked him out first, make sure he okay. Took him right up to the front, mm-hmm. and then they took him to the back to talk to the pastor. To talk to the pastor. And the pastor said, hey, my calendar is uh, free in two weeks. <laughs> That's right. You finna preach. <laughs> you finna preach. You finna preach. I'm so glad you came here today, sir. Uh, you know? I mean, it really brings me back to what we talked about last episode. And we really highlighted, actually, Reverend Dr. Goatley talked about, you know, the hospitality of the black church. And mm-hmm. that is an, a clear example of that, as Dr. DeYoung experienced that in his first time going to a black church. And it also highlighted the importance of learning from black leadership. That's right. And informal training and leadership development that's present in the black church as well. I want to actually, that's really important because I love that he mentioned that it was an apprenticeship process because people can't necessarily afford seminary. Right. And so there's a different way of training people. Right. And so even that is something we want to keep in mind as we think about the black church experience and how leaders are developed. Yeah. It recognizes that, that gifting doesn't come from an institution. It comes from God. Come on now. And that what we want to nurture in one another is the gift that God placed in you. Mm. And so we are focused not on the, not on the uh, the delivery, <laughs> but mm-hmm. the development of the mm, individual. So to good. be able to provide that in that way was powerfully meaningful, uh, as Reverend DeYoung uh, articulated for us. Mm-hmm. And it brings to my mind how we internalize our understanding of justice and the work of reconciliation depends on who is defining the terms, mm-hmm. who is defining the methods, who is defining the measures of progress. And Dr. DeYoung learned that from the black church. Mm-hmm. He spent a year in an internship. That just blessed my soul right there. That's right. Because, you know, I spent seven, no, eight years in an internship in the white church. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I often wonder what it would have been like to plant a multiracial church from my black church experience, mm. not from my white church experience that I had prior to starting this one. I bet in many ways it would have been fundamentally different. It would have been fundamentally different. That's Absolutely. right. That's right. And you know what else? Not only did he have that one year, right, under with that 
internship or that apprenticeship actually mm-hmm. is the language that's used. Mm-hmm. He then went to Howard University Divinity School. So he built on that. He did go back to seminary, which is a all black, almost all black school. That's right. You know, to learn. So that was really um, pivotal in his development as a minister mm-hmm. and in his call mm-hmm. right? that God had on his life as it relates to issues of racial justice. And then, you know, when he le- left, they said, look, man. You're going to have to go back out there. I know you might be comfortable. Yeah. But you're going to have to go back out there. <laughs> you're going to have to go back out <laughs> there. Because you know what? And racism's out there. We want you to go deal with that. Stay accountable. Stay accountable. Stay connected. Stay connected. Right. Right. Uh, but you need to go on back out there and, and do the work. And so, I can't help but think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. It really reminds me of That's, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. uh, Reverend Dion's experience, because we know that when he came over here from, from Germany, he found himself at a largely black church in New York City. Yeah, he started off at Union uh, Theological Seminary and then wandered into Abyssinian Baptist Church mm-hmm. under uh, Pastor Powell. And wow, he got radically transformed. That's right, he, with the gospel. With the gospel. Mm-hmm. He met the gospel of Jesus Christ and his sufferings that transformed the way black people engaged in the sufferings of their times. Amen. And he said, I cannot stay here in these United States while people are suffering mm-hmm. in my country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he went back and this is during the time where uh, Jews are being persecuted mm-hmm. uh, in Germany and he mourned and suffered with them. Yes, he did. So we're going to continue on in our conversation with Reverend D. Young. And now he's going to talk about reconciliation and and what went wrong with the word reconciliation and how did the church miss it and how did the church redefine it well let me start with the word uh, reconciliation and the idea of racial reconciliation uh that language of reconciliation was being used in the civil rights movement and uh, even uh, Howard Thurman, uh, the mystic theologian who was a mentor to Martin Luther King, spoke a lot about reconciliation. But it was a language that was used primarily in the black church community at that time. And then in the 90s, uh, it was co-opted by uh, evangelicals, uh, many of them white evangelicals. And I think the language of reconciliation began to mean something different. And... Um, So the language is in many ways a contested language, uh, Mm -hmm. the way we think about reconciliation. For instance, um, if you just use the language of racial reconciliation, you're talking in the context of the United States, then what are you reconciling back to? Uh, Because the United States is built on the genocide of indigenous people and the enslavement of African people. Um, And the idea of reconciliation implies that you're going back to something. uh, And why would you reconcile back to that? So I know some people want to use the language of conciliation. Uh, Of course, as Christians, the Bible uses the language of reconciliation. So that's why we're drawn to the word. It's a good word. Um, So one of the ways I've thought about it in that context is that We are reconciling back to God's original intention for the human family. Mm. Um, So really the language of reconciliation in the United States of racial reconciliation can only be used 
in theological context. It's theological language. Uh, and so um, it does not work uh, in the same way in the United States. Some good stuff, Pastor Rich, from Dr. DeYoung about reconciliation, you know, and we have to think about how important it is, again, to make sure we are clear about what we're talking about, right? I mean, he's talking about how it was um, used by the civil rights movement uh, to indicate dealing with issues of freedom and justice and dismantling a system of white supremacy. But then as white evangelicals got a hold of it and co-opted it, right, it became disempowered. Mm -hmm. They took away the power of the word, and now it's no longer about justice and dismantling white supremacy. Now it's about, well, let's get together. Right. It's kumbaya. It changed actually into this diversity, ultimately, that we've been talking about. And it diluted the word and... It just brings to mind that picture you always see when people talk about multiracial movements or churches, which are with a bunch of different mm-hmm. colored hands in a circle yeah. laid on top of each other. And isn't that beautiful? And isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not reconciliation. Reconciliation is not putting our hands on top of one another. I like what he said. If we want to go back and use it properly, go back to God's intention for his family. That's right. To be one. That's right. You know, that actually takes me take us takes me back to what Reverend Ness was talking about. We got to go back to the beginning. Back right. Because right. if we're going to reconcile, we have to go back to the beginning. Right. How did God intend for it to be? Right. He wants us to be one. He wants us to be reconciled. That's why I really appreciate how Dr. DeYoung and Professor Busek talk about reconciliation in their book, Radical Reconciliation, because they want to situate how Paul is talking about reconciliation in a colonial context and that reconciliation needs to be real. Reconciliation needs to be radical and reconciliation needs to be revolutionary, that it shouldn't just be about words and coming together and diversity, it is something that ought to flip the script, so to speak, on how we are doing life. Yes. It's, uh, again, it's a strong word. Yes. It's not a soft word. It's not a soft word. At least that's not how it's supposed to be biblically speaking. Well, speaking of biblically speaking, uh, Reverend DeYoung is going to expound even more on that biblical definition of reconciliation. Yes, let's hear what Dr. DeYoung has to say. Maybe it would be helpful just to take a look again at uh, the Greek words that have been translated reconciliation. So katalasso is the Greek word and variations thereof. And, And in essence, it literally means to exchange places. Uh, And so if you think about racial reconciliation, that would mean that white folks would give up their privilege and exchange places Mm. with uh, black or indigenous persons of color. Um, All at once that puts a whole nother um, frame (laughs) or (laughs) thought on the language. And then also I realized that um, these first century writers like the Apostle Paul, who are writing about reconciliation, coining the term, as it were, uh, were a colonized people. They were in the Roman Empire. They were a colonized mm-hmm. group of people in the Roman Empire. Yeah. So a lot of us who are back, academics in particular, have been familiar with the post-colonial 
work and writing. So I began to think about what does this mean as a colonized person to say reconciliation? And uh, that whole idea of exchanging places becomes uh, a really powerful metaphor for thinking about reconciliation in that kind of a context. The one of the few places I see that uh, Paul ties it into his um, into his reconciliation conversation is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Reconciliation is the second part of that chapter. And then if you kind of follow into the first few verses in chapter 6, and there's no, th those uh, chapter breaks were added later. Paul didn't write chapters. So that's still a continuing thought. He then begins to echo the same passage that Jesus uh, spoke in his or uh, opening sermon in Luke 4 about uh, preaching good news to the poor and releasing the oppressed. He pulls on those same Isaiah passages about justice. Mm -hmm. So he, in a sense, ties reconciliation to justice. In essence, you cannot have authentic, true reconciliation without justice. So, Dr. Corey, this word reconciliation in its Greek form has expressed something that's not happening. It means to exchange places. Mm. And for two people groups to exchange places with one another wow. so that they may be equal. Why isn't this exchange happening? You know what? I want to pull on some research, actually, that Michelle Akawa did with the Religious Leadership and Diversity Project, mm -hmm. where we looked at pastors of multiracial churches and how do they deal with, talk about, address issues of race and justice in their churches. And what she found in this paper is that pastors of multiracial churches, particularly those that would be considered uh, evangelical begin to use language that, as we talked about, dilutes rec racial reconciliation. It takes justice out of it, and it does it in such a way that it suppresses the conversations around race and justice, right? Wow. Because then what happens is racial reconciliation is used as a mechanism to promote unity, uh, but what it does is it sacrifices dealing with the real issues, right. which is inequality, injustice, oppression in the world. This is, I think, what, what comes to mind is when we just want to focus on prayer mm. or we just want to focus on, a, you know, a diverse worship choir or mm -hmm. something of that That's nature. Right. Or we're going right. to have this rally downtown or something. Uh -huh. It's like, let's just focus on how unified we are, but not talk about the injustices that continue to keep us divided. That's right. That's right. And that's not really dealing with the real issues. Right. And you can maintain uh, these systems that reproduce actually, in reality, disunity. Yeah. Well, the the folks who say that um, if we talk about justice, we're the ones who are causing the division. Mm -hmm. It's the folks who talk about real reconciliation or coming together. They're the ones who are doing the real work of, you know, bringing people together. That's right. That's right. But 
We know that to have a full picture of reconciliation, it must include justice. It absolutely must include justice. And I really appreciate Sheryl Sanders' uh, explanation of justice in her book, Empowerment Ethics for a Liberated People. And what I appreciate about her is that she actually also defines justice and how we actually can think about justice in a way that basically kind of disempowers the language as well. Mm. And as we mentioned, if we are beginning to change the language, which impacts our thoughts, which impacts our actions, then we may not actually do the work of justice. She pinpoints two things. She says you can actually engage in what she calls cheap justice. Mm. Cheap justice. She defines it as this. Cheap justice is manifested in the lives of empowered individuals who verbalize Come on now, who talk about, who verbalize prophetic claims on behalf of the oppressed, but who distance themselves physically, emotionally, and politically from the oppressed group. How can you do justice if you are distant from the folks that justice seeks to liberate? I know, right? It don't make no sense. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. But that kind of goes back to your point about you know, let's all get together. Let's go down to the rally. But you're not connecting with me emotionally because I'm hurt and I'm sad about what's going on. You're not mourning with me. Right. You are not engaging in, in supporting policies that make sure that the least of these have what they need, as Dr. Goatley talked about. You're supporting policies and political directions that are going in the opposite direction of justice. And after this rally, are you going to spend time with me or are we just going to worship together? I'm going to sing with you. And then you're, we're not going to be together anymore. So we can engage in this process of cheap justice and we mm-hmm. think we're doing something. Right. But the deal is this. Joe Sanders notes that justice is costly. And she says this costly justice, on the other hand, is a sacrificial struggle on the part of empowered individuals who maintain creative partnerships with the oppressed and who identify unambiguously with the best interest of the oppressed group. Ooh, uh, unambiguously. Meaning that there's no confusion. There's no confusion. There's no confusion about what we're guessing. trying. We're not. We're not confused about what we're trying to do. We're not confused about what we're defining. Mm-hmm. We're not confused about who's involved. It is unambiguous. It is unambiguous, it's and it's clear about whose interest we're affirming and supporting as well. And it is those of the oppressed group. And so, similar to Dr. DeYoung. Uh, Dr. Sanders is bringing that in as well, right? That we have to deal with issues of, of, of exchanging, changing our, our purpose, changing our focus, whose interests are we supporting, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And that begins with us clearly identifying what we're doing mm. and using the right language and concepts for explaining um, the process. Well, this whole uh, idea of exchange, again, is throughout the Bible. Amen. It is Jesus who was rich, Mm. who became poor Mm -mm. so that we who are poor might become rich. Come on now. He gave the greatest exchange. The gospel is all about exchange. Oh, wow. And for those who believe in God and become God's people ought Mm -hmm. to be moved towards the exchange as well. Amen. Amen. You don't start preaching. I'm going to pass the plate somebody. (laughs) 
<laughs> here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. And so now we're going to actually engage in a discussion of biblical justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it that Dr. DeYoung says about biblical justice? Uh, in particular, what does biblical ju- justice look like for people of color in America? But I do think that's why uh, we need to pay attention to and also engage in the conversations occurring around reparations. Now, yeah. for a lot of people, the language of reparations is scary or confusing. I think it's just about cutting a check. And maybe it is for the government to do that at some point. But what it's ultimately about is repairing uh, the harm that's been done because of racism. Yeah. And a part of that's yeah. very much about economics. Uh, and in fact, the, the economics of race is the reason why we have health disparities that we see so clearly during this COVID-19 era exposed because it's just a lack of resources in different communities. It's why we see the education gaps that we see Mm -hmm. um, and certainly wealth gaps, home ownership gaps, et cetera. That needs to be repaired. And um, though it's one thing to talk about that in society and what that means for a nation uh, to really repair against its history, but for a church, it's we're called to treat each other as sisters and brothers in Christ and mm-hmm. to, to have a certain kind of um, holy ideal in how we do this work. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's almost a sin to see uh, the way uh, certain churches live in, in just an unbelievable prosperity mm-hmm. and other churches are trying to survive in um, horrible poverty. Uh, there's just something not right about that when God, when Jesus is praying for us to all be one. From a biblical perspective, that's what the Apostle Paul, mm. we haven't looked at those texts very closely. And, yeah. and when we moved into COVID, I started to reread some of those texts of the, the uh, offerings he was taking up for the Jerusalem church. And, mm-hmm. and the initial one was uh, to respond to a famine. But after that, it seems to me as he went to Macedonia and Corinth and Rome and the other churches, he was trying to build a relationship mm. uh, with the church in Jerusalem because the Jerusalem church was suffering economically. And he was trying to help these churches that were primarily populated by Gentiles yeah. to help the Palestinian Jews in the Jerusalem church. And then he says, but this is an even exchange because you have the gospel because of the oppressed Palestinian Jews. You Gentiles have the gospel. So the least you can do is return some uh, financial support to help them in their time of need. And I think as we move forward in this country, that kind of an exchange makes sense even in our current time that the white church, uh, the white evangelical church is a dying church, the white church generally. Um, and mm. Robert P. Jones in his book, White Too Long, makes this so clear. If you haven't read that book, it's one you need to get on your shelf and read. Mm. Um, and the white church is going to need uh, the black church, indigenous churches, churches of color yeah. um, to restore the, the true essence of the gospel. So it'll be an even exchange uh, and it'll be a part of creating this, this sense of equality. And then we may see the reconciliation that we hope for. Pastor Rich, that was packed. 
It sure was. That was jam-packed. Man, <laughs> Dr. DeYoung was breaking it down all the way. Uh, Woo, he went in. He did. He, he talked did. about the even exchange. The even exchange. He got practical. He got real practical. Paul was like, look, you know what? We know that that church helped you financially, but hey, they're helping you because they're giving you the seeds and the rich, the richness of the gospel. That's, That's right. an even exchange. That's an even exchange. And I love how he's bringing that into what's going on today mm-hmm. and how we can talk about that even exchange, right? That those who have can share with those who do not have as it relates to finances. Amen. And we can talk about the richness that's in churches of color, the black church, indigenous churches that have an understanding of the gospel as we've already talked about because of that connection, understanding of what it means to experience suffering from the perspective of people who have been oppressed in society. And this That's is, a, and, and this is more than pulpit swaps. Cause I can hear somebody say, Oh, uh, what we just talking about pulpit swap then, right? Yeah. That's what it is. No, we, it is. I, no, don't, no. I do not mm-hmm. think that's what brother DeYoung said. I do not, don't think that, he meant pulpit swaps. <laughs> he didn't. What mean. he meant was a sharing of resources. Absolutely. Material resources mm-hmm. and spiritual resources. That's right. As we have it to exchange with one another. Come on now. Come on now. So the church ought to be thinking of itself as a member of a bigger part mm-hmm. in your local city, in your local town, in your mm-hmm. local community. That's right. That you are one together. That's right. And I also like that he brought in the biblical point that we are family, mm-hmm. right? That we are called to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we do that, we take care of one another. We see each other as being in this together. And we talked about this already, but it has such implications for justice and it has such implications for oneness and the biblical definition of reconciliation. Well, reparations in this sense is something that the church can do. Yes. We're, we're not just talking about waiting on a government, you know, institutional reparations. We're talking about what the church, the body of Christ can do for one another. That's right. Which leads me to the question, should we start using the word reparations and you know let what? go of reconciliation? You know what? I'm wondering about that myself, Pastor Rich, mm. because I like what Brother DeYoung was talking about as he talks about reparations is about repairing mm-hmm. and healing. Mm-hmm. And and our God is about healing, making us whole, repairing damage. And so when we think about it in that way, that is very much um, the business in which we should be in. We should be about healing and bringing wholeness and repairing. So reparations, recognizing that that's what it is about, I believe is very appropriate language. Well, we're going to hear some more from Reverend D. Young, who's going to expound on that a little bit more about what are we repairing? In fact, maybe even what should be repented of. Mm-hmm. We'll stay with the context of the United States. So um, we have to look at the history of racism in the United States. And so Uh, In the case of um, indigenous communities, Native Americans, uh, their lands were stolen. Uh, Genocide in many ways occurred. Um, You look at uh, African people who were brought here as slaves and uh, their labor was uncompensated. And then during the segregation Jim Crow era, Mm -hmm. undercompensated. 
Um, so there uh, now is a gap uh, in society. Uh, in you're a sociologist, you know the studies. Mm -hmm. It all shows these great gaps based on race. That's without applying gender or class or other kinds of, just on race by itself. There are these gaps that have resulted from history. Mm. That's what needs to be repaired mm. from an economic perspective. Mm -hmm. There's also been a great um, a need. There's also been a great uh, attack, I guess, on the cultures of people. Mm. That needs to be repaired. There's spiritual repair that needs to be placed. So, I mean, it's a, we talk about reparations repairing. It's a, it's a big, a big thing. It's going to take a while. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think reparations are repairing and repentance are sort of tied together, but you know, I've always thought of repentance is that idea of you're moving in one direction, you turn like a 180 degree turn and go in the opposite direction. Yeah. Uh, especially in our own individual lives when we're trying to make changes, we call about repentance. So we, it's an actual decision made. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think in addition to repairing the history of racism in our country and in the church, there's also needs to be a turning and moving in a new direction mm -hmm. because this history has created a set of systems. Mm -hmm. So if we simply just um, fix what went wrong in the past and it brought everyone up to an equal position economically, the system itself is still uh, causing these disparities. So we would not have correct, we'd start at the same point and then we'd see the gaps developing again because the system itself has been created to harm people yeah. based on race. And, but if we only fixed the system and didn't address the history, mm. then we'd already have gaps um, and they would continue. So it's a mm. both and kind yeah. of situation uh, to address this. Oh, Pastor Rich, I really appreciate what Dr. DeYoung is talking about there when he breaks down reparations and what we need to repair and how we need to repair. Mm -hmm. I love that he talks about not just economic repair, but cultural repair, spiritual repair as well, because oppression suppressed and oppressed not only people from being able to advance economically, it also oppressed people's culture, in fact, uh, denigrated it. Uh, mm -hmm. dehumanized people by saying mm -hmm. parts of their culture weren't uh, acceptable, weren't appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing that that has to be repaired as well. And then spiritually, right? Because certain types of spiritual practices and ways in which we under understand God are perceived as being different or not as acceptable. And we've been talking about that a good deal so far, right? right. And so this repairing uh, is, very, is broad and uh, it requires us focusing on a lot of different areas. And the and, two things in order to do that, right? We we have to be honest again about mm -hmm. our history yes. and address our history. Yes. And that history has established systems which further embed it into our culture and our uh, the way we socialize with one another. Absolutely. And these systems are not only formal or as a result of laws and policies, but it's also just how we go about doing life. Right? right. The everyday ways in which we do life so that right now, you know, we take for granted that we live in segregated, largely segregated neighborhoods racially. But that began 
decades ago. Right. Right. It's been going on for so long. Mm -hmm. And those policies and laws establish that, particularly from the government. But also we can think about things like restrictive covenants. And so we have these ways in which we go about doing life that are the result of history. And then we develop these systems of doing life, which is everyday ways in which we do stuff that reproduces uh, inequality and segregation and injustice. So we have to take look at all of those different parts. And I'd love that Dr. DeYoung brings that up. Another key point that you bring up, Pastor Rich, when you talk about speaking about it, is that truth telling. Mm -hmm. We have to tell the truth. We cannot, you know, hide things or, or hide them in, you know, and pretend that they're not there. We got to talk about what's really going on. Am I right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, when language obscures systemic causes, it impedes systemic solutions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. So for example, communities in distress, they didn't get there by natural causes. They didn't begin with some moral decay or ethical neglect. Our communities are the result of policies and programs, funding or lack of funding sustained over generations of oppression. That's right. So this language, what this language does is it hides the truth in plain sight. Mm -hmm. In plain sight. (laughs) Right. right? We just take it for granted. We Mm. don't even think about it. We don't even think about it. We don't even process it. We just see that, hey, you know, we live in these neighborhoods. They live in those neighborhoods. And we if we don't if we don't explicitly connect the historical and contemporary practices of racism That's shaping right. the conditions of the places we live mm-hmm. and the way we interact with one another, then we actually give room for individuals to determine who's to blame for that distress. And they will always blame that which is different Absolutely. and that which they don't understand. Absolutely. And the people that are oppressed, and right? The people who are oppressed. So there's two things you're talking about there. One, it'll go from the systemic to the individual. Mm-hmm. That's just you. You got problems. Or it'll talk about... Uh, how the oppressed is culturally inept, right? right? Or right. you just aren't pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Get it together, get That's it together, right. child. Right? Well, they, maybe they, maybe they wouldn't say child, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but they say get it together and say, pull yourself up by your right. bootstraps, That's right. just, just get it like together. I did, yeah. while not paying attention to actually the 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 inheritance of wealth and mm. the inheritance of opportunity mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the the inheritance of deference that's been passed along from one generation to the next. That's right. You didn't pull that's yourself right. up from your own bootstraps. No, you didn't do that. <laughs> no, no. They gave you the boots. They gave you the strings <laughs> and they sat down and tied them for you. Oh, oh that's right. And then you that's walked right. out of that out of that room and you said, look at what I did. Look at what I done did, look y'all. At I, mm, oh, ain't these boots goodness. good? They ain't, look good. Wow. So there's truth telling. And you know, we mm-hmm. have to tell the truth. But uh, another really important part of this is repentance. Mm-hmm. So after Say we that. acknowledge it, we have to repent. And this is very biblical. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are in our process of sanctification. We are regularly going to God and repenting. Mm-hmm. Right? We're called to be aware of our sin. This is not a one-time deal. Yes. Right? And yes. so repent. And that means an about-face. That's right. That means going in a different direction. That's right. That means acknowledging, ah, oh, I wasn't doing that right. We weren't doing that right. Mm-hmm. We aren't doing that right. We need to do it differently. And so repentance is really critical as well. And then you have to begin to make amends. Mm-hmm. And another way of putting that is repairing, mm-hmm. healing, mm-hmm. doing justice, making things right. Yes. Uh, and then, and then we can begin to move toward that biblical 
just um, reconciliation. Yeah, that's that's so powerful. And it, it brings to mind uh, in the book of Nehemiah, uh, when Nehemiah, who's never lived in Jerusalem, hears about the ruins and hears about the ways in which uh, the people of God are not living as the people of God. He repents mm. and he repents. He even says in his language for my fathers. Wow. So he, he repents of something he wasn't there for. Mm. He didn't create, mm. but he takes a responsibility mm. to be about repairing the brokenness that was back in Jerusalem. That is so good. Mm. And when I think about that, I think about repairing that history mm-hmm. because you see, you can still be benefiting from that history. And so you have to repent from enjoying sort of the spoils of an oppressive system. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. And that even though maybe you weren't actively creating in the historical system, Mm -hmm. you were currently benefiting from the existing system. Mm. And that also requires repentance. Ooh. I feel like you, I should just say, say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Say that. <laughs> Say that. Say that. <laughs> well, you know, and we are definitely in a moment now mm-hmm. where oh. we really need to be repenting. Amen. I, um, I, I, I hear where you're coming. And from. that we are in a space where we need to begin to mourn together. Mm-hmm. We are in a um, such a a pivotal moment um, as not only just a country, but really as the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think about, you know, over this past year, the succession of killings of black people without justice, um, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and then George Floyd, um, where George Floyd's murder was in many ways like what happened to Emmett Till, mm-hmm. but in today's time. And um, Dr. DeYoung, who is in Minneapolis, uh, and right that's there. where... George Floyd was murdered is going to be sharing uh, some about what justice and reconciliation looks like in action, particularly as it relates to the response of the churches uh, to the murder of George Floyd there in Minneapolis. So I live in Minneapolis. I live 10 blocks from where uh, George Floyd was killed. And uh, as you will remember, he was killed uh, May 25th, which was Memorial Day in the evening. Um, Because of the uh, um, witnesses who were there and the video that was taken, very quickly, uh, our country was traumatized by the images of a police officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd, who... Uh, was begging for this man to let him breathe. He said he couldn't breathe, called out for his mother, and in about eight minutes of time, died right on the street. Um, Knowing he's being videotaped, three other police officers there on site, not intervening in him, just pushing the crowd back. And uh, this horrific uh, trauma and dehumanization of a black man by the name of George Floyd. So uh, the next day, of course, uh, by the evening of the following day, people gathered in uh, what's now called George Floyd Square, 
that particular intersection, which is a rather busy thoroughfare in the south side of Minneapolis, uh, has since May 25th been closed off and there's been a constant uh, vigil of people there. Um, And so the church community has been engaged with local residents in keeping vigil at the location. Of course, we we know that in the days following, uh, protests broke out across the country, uh, much of it nonviolent. Some uh, would move to the category we would call unrest. Um, what we experienced in Minneapolis uh, was the, the very night, next night, uh, there was a rally and then people protested down to the police precinct uh, to bring the protest to where the offense uh, was coming from and to p- protest the policing that had happened. Uh, Cause a few younger folks uh, in their rage uh, threw a rock or a few things and then the police overreacted uh, with um, tear gas and rubber bullets and uh, the same. I, uh, I, I'm i an old guy now. I'm, you know, I'm in my early 60s. So I went to the rally and a friend of mine and I were hanging out. We said, well, we don't, we'll let the young people march. I mean, if we know what was about to happen, we had been there with them. But I remember turning on my uh, social media because the head of the NAACP here is a young, young woman. Um, and I was going to watch her feed. And I turn on and immediately she's being tear gassed. As soon as mm. I turn it on, I'm going, oh my God, this has really turned out bad. And so, but what happened in the days following uh, was that a, uh, from best we can tell, a group of white supremacists uh, found their ways to our city and began to target black neighborhoods with arson and looting. Mm. And in fact, and we have three sort of distinct kind of historic black communities here. And in those cases, nearly all of their grocery stores and pharmacies were burned and damaged. And um, with public transportation down, uh, people could not get the meds and the groceries that they needed. And so here's where the church then begins to step in. The historic black churches who are um, existing in those communities needed to get basic, you know, groceries and meds to people. And so we, uh, with others, helped link up uh, white churches um, to help provide some of those supplies. And the public transportation system was down because of National Guard presence and policing throughout the city. And um, and part of the reason we think that this was, or know that this was white supremacist style behavior is there were unidentified white men driving in cars and neighborhoods with the license plates taken off the cars. Uh, and then uh, just, you know, uh, a lot of our neighborhoods were under duress. Um, then there was, uh, the FBI said there was a credible threat against uh, black churches and there might be black church buildings being burned. Mm-hmm. And so the black churches like the businesses boarded up and thankfully none of them were burned. Uh, I do know uh, one pastor friend of mine who uh, his neighbors were out protecting the church and they did um, uh, capture a couple of young white men that uh, seemed to be on their way uh, to light up the church. Mm. Um, so that's the first week uh, where, you know, uh, we're, we've got all this, uh, all this policing and national guard and we have all folks in the streets and protests going. 
um, and the church trying to manage direct needs. They're also a group of, of folk doing chaplaincy work with protesters uh, because again, this whole setup was very trauma inducing and uh, challenging. Um, because of the unrest, there were churches out cleaning up the streets uh, where the broken glass was. Um, within about a week, though, then we uh, were able to organize and do a massive march. Uh, we had a thousand people, a thousand clergy of all mm. faith groups uh, marching uh, in Minneapolis and to the, to the George Floyd uh, memorial site. But then after, you know, a few weeks, you, you, we've been protesting uh, as clergy, we've been involved in other protests, we've been trying to meet direct needs of people. It's sort of like, what got us here? And where do we need to move to address mm. these issues? And Minnesota uh, and uh, the Twin Cities have some of the highest racial disparities in the country. Really? Uh, one of our uh, scholars here at the University of Minnesota calls this the Minnesota paradox. Mm. Uh, Minnesota is one of the best places in the country for white people to live. Mm. And one of the worst places in the country for black people to live wow. statistically, whether health, education, wealth, housing, policing. Uh, George Floyd was the third high profile police killing in uh, five years uh, mm. of ones that made the news. And of course, many people remember Philando Castile's killing here in the Twin Cities. So yeah. we have a history and we began to understand that it, that the sort of the explosion of rage was a community or communities that have been under the stress and pressure mm. of these great racial disparities for so long that you just knew at some point it was going to explode. So we thought, well, how do we address that? How do we begin to address that? And that's where we uh, began to think about reparations. Well, I mean, there's so much there, uh, Pastor Rich, so much there in hearing about what happened to George Floyd again and how people were treated who were protesting, how churches got involved, uh, the backlash that was experienced, mm -hmm. and then how the churches are now working to move toward reparation. So much there. And one thing, several things stand out to me, but one of the things that stands out to me is just the pain mm -hmm. and, and the rage uh, and the anger over the systems of oppression that people have been under mm -hmm. for so long uh, and that great disparity in that particular city. But also when we think about, we know that's replicated across our country as well. And people respond out of their humanity. You know, when you are oppressed, when you see what we saw, with George Floyd, when we see what we saw with Ahmaud Aubrey, that is going to and ought to bring up emotion in you, deep pain. It should bring up anger. Mm -hmm. One should be enraged. Mm -hmm. And I suppose my question is, if you're not angry, if you're not enraged, if you're not deeply sad, I don't understand that. 
Yeah, how can you feel love for God mm. and not recognize the hatred that has been done to God's children? Mm. Mm-hmm. How can you say that you are in love with God yeah. and yet not pay attention to the lack of love that's being done to God's people? That's right. That's right. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't. It's inconsistent with the gospel. It's inconsistent with being a follower of Jesus to say that you love God and you yes. do not care what happens to God's people. It is. And all people are God's people. I'm not making a distinction between who has made a confession or profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That's right. We are all created in God's image. That's right. Period. That's right. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament book of Exodus, when God sends Moses back to Egypt, Mm. he tells them, I have seen the misery of my people in Mm, Egypt. I heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Yes. yes. He didn't say "Eh, they'll figure it out. (laughs) No, Mm -hmm. he got personally and directly involved in the suffering of his people. Absolutely. God sees. God sees. God sees. I think about that with Mm -hmm. Hagar as well. Mm-hmm. That God saw her suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, so on. God sees. God does not ignore. God does not turn a, bl- a blind eye. And as his children, we are also to see and then to act uh, in response to what we see. The The murder of George Floyd was a very public event. Yeah. The whole nation and not just the whole nation, the whole world, mm-hmm. you know, could see it. And I honestly have not watch the video i've not seen the eight minutes either. and 46 seconds i can't do I can't it, do it. um i only seen some still shots and i remember when somebody said he was crying out for his mother and mm. i was like wait what i didn't i still then i didn't need to go see it and watch it to feel and to understand the pain that he was going through mm, mm. and so many people of color are intimately involved with in that moment yes. now now here's what I, I can imagine people are saying, but what about forgiveness? Mm-hmm. At, at one point, are we going to forgive <laughs> and move on? Uh, what about forgiveness? Can we talk just a little bit about that and yeah, address that? That's really important to bring that up. That the people say, well, you know, um, we need to let that go. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't, or we didn't mean it. You know, just forgive us. And yeah, for, forgiveness is godly. That's right. We are absolutely called to forgive, and God says that that is what makes it clear that we're the children of God. Is that mm-hmm. we have forgiving hearts, that mm-hmm. we have soft hearts. Mm-hmm. However, forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same thing. They're not the same processes. That people end up trying to use forgiveness in some ways to circumvent reconciliation. That's right. Circumvent that costly justice that has to occur Mm -hmm. to circumvent that exchange that we've talked about. Uh, But what that does is that is not leading toward actual peace or real peace, right? What it's suggesting when you're calling for forgiveness, but you don't want to engage in the work of reconciliation, you're asking the oppressed to be a peacekeeper, right? Right. Just, just keep the peace. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you're not, we are not called to be peacekeepers. We're called to be peace 
makers, right? And when you are keeping the peace, that makes me think of when Jesus says people are saying, peace, peace, when there ain't no peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we are not called to just talk about peace. We're called to make peace. And that means that we have to forgive, sure, but we absolutely have to engage in the process of reconciliation, which includes what we've talked about so far, truth telling that requires repenting, Mm -hmm. that requires amending, which is making things right, which is justice, which is repairing, which is healing, right? Uh, And people may not want to do the work of that because it's hard, but that's what's required. So no, forgiveness, yes, we're called to that, mm-hmm. but we cannot say that forgiveness and reconciliation are the same thing. These are totally different processes. They're totally different processes, and it, it brings to mind the expectation one uh, might have of a battered family member mm. in in the role of forgiveness. Are yeah. we are we are we consciously sending that battered family member back into the home That's that right. is not safe? That's right. That is not whole mm-hmm. or healthy. That's right. No, That's right. No, no. Forgive, but reconciliation is going to require a change Come on, in now. that other person. That's right. And without that change, we cannot be completely reconciled. And and this is the deal. When we forgive and we don't expect reconciliation, uh, we are actually not loving our brothers and sisters who are engaging in oppressive process, uh, oppressive acts. Mm-hmm. We're not loving them because they are not just sinning against us. They're sinning against God. Right. And if they are going to be in right relationship, not just with us, but with God, then we have to tell the truth. And say to them, you need to engage in injustice. You need to engage in repentance if you are going to not only be right with us, but also be right with God. So the loving thing is to tell the truth. The loving thing is to stand in truth. And the loving thing is to expect repentance. Well, I think uh, Reverend DeYoung is a, is a model here and an mm. example for us as followers of Jesus who are creating new systems and new structures yeah. that are truly multiracial That's right. um, and multicultural mm-hmm. where people have a shared voice and power in what they believe needs to be done to repair the brokenness that's in their city. And what's more, actually, Dr. DeYoung says that it's the leaders of color who are leading the uh the cause mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that it's actually the white leaders of denominations that are following leaders of color uh african american leaders uh first first nation leaders mm-hmm. in this move toward reparations mm-hmm. and so they are working out modeling this exchange and what does it look like to to be one Amen. uh in the in the process of reconciliation so usually we finish off our podcast with some final thoughts, but I got a final question, Dr. Corey. Uh, Can the word reconcile be redeemed? <laughs> is it possible? Oh, my gosh. You know what? I wonder about that, Pastor Rich. I mean, it is absolutely biblical. Amen. Thank Reconciliation you. Reconciliation is biblical, but it has been so co-opted over these past few decades and used as a way of suppressing uh, real justice mm-hmm. of suppressing uh, reparations and healing and wholeness that 
I think we have to at least discuss bringing in some other language. And this reparations language, I think, is a powerful mm-hmm. and appropriate mm-hmm. because it's talking about repairing. It's talking about healing. That's mm-hmm. what reparations is about. And it's about bring, making things whole. And our God is a God of healing. Our God is a God of making things whole. Our God is a God of bringing repair yes. to where, where wounding has occurred. Yes. So I believe it's time for us to talk about to talk about that and begin to bring that into our vocabulary as we move toward uh, real oneness in Christ. Well, I'm going to I'm going to end with this, folks. OK. All right. Um, <laughs> here's what I need y'all to do. I, I, first of all, I need y'all to stay curious and ask questions like yeah. stay in the posture of a learner. Come on now. Because learning new language or accurately mm-hmm. learning the correct language is the work that we ultimately need to be doing right now. And in order to learn that language, here's the second thing I need you to do. Expose yourself to terms defined by people of color. That's right. And accept what they tell you. Accept it. Period. That's right. Period. Period. <laughs> I, there's nothing else to say. Don't, mm-hmm. don't que- you know, you don't have to question it. Listen, we, we understand and we know. Number three, start using this new vocabulary in your own personal lexicon. That's right. Where you start to describe things. Use that language that you're learning. That's right. That's right. And I love that you're highlighting, Pastor Rich, uh, beginning to submit to other visions Mm -hmm. and other understandings of the gospel. Submit to other other language Mm -hmm. that's being used. And also I would suggest uh, following uh, other leaders as well, leaders of color in particular. Amen. So in closing... Thank you all for subscribing. Okay. Yes. This is we're halfway through yes, this season. Yes, ah, yes. Come on. We that's, have we're, we're, we're in right. there. We <laughs> in there. That's we right. We in there. And we thank you so much for sharing as well. We have been really enjoying this. Um again, you know you can find this on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. And we also appreciate you sharing what's going on with the Lucid Dream Podcast on social media. We thank you so much for your reviews. Yes. And our do. hope is that this helps to further the conversation about what it means to pursue true justice and racial equity uh, as the beloved community. Well, you can find me, Dr. Corey, on Twitter mm-hmm. <laughs> at Richard Wesley and on Instagram at Rich Johnson Online. Uh, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter uh, and Facebook, and that's uh, at Corey Little Edwards, Corey spelled K O R I E, and. I have started to uh, post some stuff on Instagram. So Say I'm, what? I know, I know. You on the grams? I'm on the grams, Pastor Rich. <laughs> <laughs> I got about 10 pictures, <laughs> but I'll be building on that. So you all can uh, find me there as well. So what should we leave our listeners with, Pastor Rich? Well, the dream may be elusive, but it is attainable. Mm.